You're listening to the Modern Therapist Survival Guide, where therapists live, breathe, and practice as human beings. To support you as a whole person and a therapist, here are your hosts, Kurt Widhelm and Katie Vernoy. Welcome back, Modern Therapists. Thanks for joining us once again. And as always, if you wouldn't mind hopping over to iTunes and giving us a rating and a review there, that really helps us out. This is the Modern Therapist Survival Guide podcast. I'm Kurt Whithelm with my co-host, Katie Vernoy. And I'm really excited for today's episode because we've interviewed a lot of people here. There's a number of different people that we've brought to you who have really shared a lot of their experiences But today's guest is actually somebody who has been an inspiration to me from the very early stages of my career. I've had a lot of conversations with her about business planning. She's shared a wealth of information with me throughout the years. She's partially responsible for how I am the way I am. So (laughs) give her the appropriate level of of responsibility for that. But today's guest... (laughs) Anita Avedia, and she's a licensed marriage and family therapist. She's a certified anger management specialist and just kind of a queen of entrepreneurial all things therapy. So thank you so much for being here today, Anita. Thank you. That was such a beautiful introduction. (laughs) I know. So much pressure, right, Anita? (laughs) I'm super excited to have you here as well. I've met you more recently. And so for me, it's been exciting to get to know you and just to see how much you're able to do for our community and for the people in the greater Los Angeles area, as well as all over the place. Like you're amazing. So I'm super, super excited for this conversation as well. And so we'll start as we always do is who are you and what are you putting out in the world? Well, love the introduction and thank you for having me here today. But I am, I am a licensed marriage and family therapist, and I've been doing this for 22 years. So I do consider myself a seasoned therapist. And I started with this process with uh, really doing more therapy. And I ended up transitioning into getting into a group practice and throughout the process, what I would say I absolutely love doing, and this is where I've met Kurt, was networking through professional associations and organizations. Uh, So I would say I'm someone who loves to bring and unite people together and be part of that and help our professional field grow. I can imagine, and Anita and I have had some of these conversations, but I don't know a lot about you before I came into your life. Like, so I'm, I'm kind of separating your life into before Kurt and after Kurt, but like, it was like this huge, like yes. important event when you met Kurt. Yes. Life changing. Calendar, calendar switched over there. You know. <laughs> yes. Did you always imagine being in this entrepreneurial space? Like, did you go out of grad school and just be like, I'm going to take over the therapy world? You're hilarious. So no, I I did not have that mindset. It was more um, during my college years, I absolutely loved being part of organizations and associations. So there was a point in my undergraduate years where I was actually part of 10 organizations, Wow. the student body. It was always about leadership and collaborating with others. And through there, I learned the importance of and the power of um, the relationships with one another and helping one another grow. And of course, through that process, you also 
realize the differences each has and how to work with those differences. So I think that when you have those type of relationships and experiences and leadership, you really learn how to then implement that in your later years. So a lot of times people will ask me, where did you learn the entrepreneurship from? It's definitely not from my mom or father. They weren't an entrepreneur, um, but I never thought anything different. Or, I, or when people would say, Nita, you're such an entrepreneur, I would never say, oh, yes, I am. I'm like, what are you talking about? This is normal. And so I, it was never, I, for me, I had never perceived it that way. It was just part of my circle, both at college and afterwards, where you're just, you, you go into leadership. That's what you do. You help, uh, you have a purpose and you help the community. That's what you do. That's what everyone does, right? Until later you realize that people have differences. So um, in my graduate program, I will say that when I first applied, I went into for the licensed marriage and family therapy, but at that time they allowed us to do additional certifications. And I always loved business, absolutely loved business. And so they had two different business tracks. And I said, you know what? I'd like to add those two tracks to what I'm doing. And they looked at me like I was crazy and they said, no one does two, you just do one. <laughs> and I said, no, I'd like to do the two and I'll spend the extra time here. And so I decided to do uh, the two certifications with business industry and government. So one was the employee assistance program track and the other was the consultation and human resources track. So those tracks kind of helped me see what it's like to be in the corporate world um, to learn about business organization and things of that nature. And the LMFT track, obviously you both are very familiar. Mm -hmm. we, we've learned something very similar. And so I think that potentially helped me a little bit with shaping me with who I am today. But the vision I had back then, not that that's ever really come true, was working at a corporate setting as the psychologist of the company or something mm -hmm. like that, which is what industrial organizational people do and industrial psychologists do. So I did not take that track, but it was close enough. So after my college years, I, I did those three internships. The second and third internships were in as an EAP and as a consultant to a company. So it was very exciting. That and, sounds really exciting. Yeah. And thereafter, I just got into mostly in the LMFT private practice. And Kurt, you and I met shortly thereafter, or maybe years, a few years <laughs> after. <laughs> a few years after. But, but I, was, I was part of, for example, San Fernando Valley Camp when I was in grad school. So I've been part of that since 96. And then you and I met whenever you decided to come in. And I, when was that? 2006 or so. Okay. So 10 <laughs> years later, shortly thereafter. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's so amazing. I love that you kind of knew about yourself, that you wanted the leadership, that you at first thought it was just what everybody did. But then once you really identified that, you gave yourself the opportunity to truly educate yourself in the, in the skills, in the the concepts and, and arenas that you thought would be really important to this this future goal. I I, I want to do that too. Like I, I love the industrial organizational stuff. It just, it's amazing. And, and I, I know that that's not where you ended up. And so how did that shift? Like, I know where you've got, you know, ang anger management, 818, you've got anger management essentials, you've got all of that. How did it shift from this, this kind of in-house, you know, counsel, counselors, psychologist to these huge entrepreneurial efforts where you're, you've got, 
all these different offerings that you're giving to your community? I want to say that every year what I've done, what I pursued came up naturally. It wasn't planned out. I had no intention to get into the anger management field. So my background really was every month as an intern and my first few years as licensed, every month or every two months, I pretty much did a certification training. Yes, it costs a lot of money. It's a <laughs> lot of time. But for me, it was, I was just intrigued and I wanted to know everything. I was, I wanted to know more about our field. And when I did the anger management certification training at that time, I was working at UCLA. One of the, one of my colleagues who I was supervising also then took the anger management training and asked, how about we get into an anger management business together? So it, it stemmed from there. It wasn't my idea. It wasn't my initiative. I just did it as, oh, we can collaborate and do something fun together. That was my perception of it. Yeah. Sure. Why not? So we started what was called at that time, Avidian Brumfield and colleagues, otherwise ABC Centers for Self-Improvement. That was our corporation. Got Eventually, it. she decided to do get into EAP at Kaiser. So she's there full time now. And so she left the private practice. And at which point I decided to rename the agency Anger Management 818 because I was in the San Fernando Valley at the time. Mm-hmm. 818 stands for our area code. And within a year, two years, we kept growing and growing. And last year, we had 10 locations. Wow. It just, it just kept growing. Right now, we're, we're at eight locations, but we just grew and that agency continues where we have clinicians, everyone certified, and we are facilitating groups and doing one-on-ones. But that's where that came in, the anger management yeah. stemmed from there. Just somebody saying like, hey, this would be fun. Let's do it. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. So most of what I do, believe it or not, there was no real vision of here's what I want to be doing. It, it starts from someone proposing an idea to me and I try to assess whether, hmm, do I like this? Do I not? If I like it, let's do it. And most of the time I get excited about things. So sure, I move forward with it. Now, when people propose ideas to me, I'm like, I don't have the time. It's really good for me to even consider the concept. So that was my beginning. And you've taken this in a number of different directions and literally all over the world at this point Mm -hmm. with some of your trainings, you've taken it into the app world in some of your projects. Walk us through a little bit more about how as these opportunities present themselves, what do you really consider outside of the time commitment as far as what you take on and what you don't? It's a great question. So sometimes I don't even realize how much I've taken on until I have weeks where I don't even have a minute to myself and I think, what am I doing? Mm-hmm. And other times I have some downtime. I'm like, oh, great. We have time for a new project, right? Or to <laughs> respond to a new project, not realizing that I'm going to have those times where there's really no time. For example, you guys are familiar with ShrinkSync. We, there's three of us who developed an app for therapists to network. And this was about maybe four years ago. I am not in the app world. So I don't, <laughs> I've never developed an app. I have no idea how these things work. Fortunately, we had a few people on board who knew what they were doing and they just needed clinicians who can kind of get the word out there and, and have bring in that mindset. So 
that's something I took on. It was exciting. But as time went on, we all realized how much work is really involved in the time that it required. And I think it was a year or two years ago, we decided to put that on hold because we don't have, each of us had full-time jobs. So we didn't have the manpower and the time to let us continue. So in that, at that point, I had to make a decision, we all did, that we need to put this on hold for now and revisit it at a later time, which is what we did. Currently, the way I make decisions most of the time is looking at, do we have a need for something? For example, I authored the Anger Management Essentials Workbook for Adults. I wasn't planning on authoring a workbook. Within five years of creating handouts that were going to be better with content for our clients, eventually I realized I have a workbook. So it was a natural Mm. progression. And I said, oh, I should publish this. Before publishing it, I thought, oh, we should have our clients have all these worksheets as as handouts. And then eventually I said, wait, it's a book. Let me publish this. (laughs) So we published it. Within two months or three months, I went to Armenia for a training. Then I thought, wait a minute. They don't read English there, or some of them do, not everyone. So I needed to have a book in Armenian. And so I had it translated within a few months and published it in Armenian, went out to Armenia and put the training in Armenian, out in Armenia. Within a year, everyone kept asking for Spanish material, so I had it translated in Spanish. So it's not something I had a vision of. It was, there's a need, I keep getting these requests, and then I decide to work on that. Now, I'm, I'm making it sound easy, but translating books if you don't know the language, is a very tough gig. That Spanish book, I had three different people having to work on that book. Initially, which I didn't realize, I had someone from Spain translate it. Well, that's not going to fly here. And so I had to have two more people translate, and then someone else fixed the grammar. Well, I can't double-check this work. It's out of my control. So each translation I'm talking about takes a long time, and it's out of your control. You're relying on other people. And so that translation finished, we, we put together the Hebrew one last year because we had a Hebrew speaking group and we needed material in Hebrew. We put the teens book together because we had a teens group and we said, wait, the adult content's not good enough for the teens. So it's as time goes on, it's wait, this is a need. But now when people say, Anita, I'd like to get the book translated in this other language, I say no. Because because it's not that easy, and it and you have to think of the cover. You have to think of the um, is this translated properly? Are there mistakes in there? I have no idea. Grammatical um, is this like yeah. so? This at this point, when people bring that to my attention, I say no. The only the last thing we're working on right now is the teens book is getting into is getting translated to Spanish, and we're taking our time with that. That makes sense. And this past year, for example, I realized we have a need for a facilitator manual. So, of course, this past year, that's been our focus is because I I do all these monthly trainings and I train facilitators, even though they're there, they're taking notes, they have the handouts. I think it will be beautiful for them to have the material in front of them with how do I introduce this group? What's the purpose of this worksheet? What are some activities we can implement? What are some videos we can show? And so forth. So what's an engaging question to start the group with? I'm like, what a beautiful way of creating a facilitator manual. And hopefully in the next month, that will be published. Does that answer how I make my decision? (laughs) Yeah, I think so. I think, especially because I think, and we had a little bit of a conversation before this interview. and, And my sense is really that you're, 
I think you had said that you're not really this visionary, although I disagree with you, but that you kind of take opportunities as they come and you identify needs. Mm -hmm. And I think that's so critical because I think a lot of people get into these shoulds. I should be doing this. I should have this big vision for my life. I should be doing all these things. And I I believe you need to have direction and you need to have vision on on who you want to be and how you want to, you know, what you want to put out in the world. But I think forcing it becomes a much harder deal. And I think what you've identified is that when you had a specific reason to, to translate the book into a particular language, those types of things, it, it seemed to make sense, although it was difficult, it flowed, there was a, a result that was very specific that you were looking for a neat, specific need you were meeting, but saying, but like having this big goal of having like, I'm going to translate it into every language and it's going to be in all corners of the world like that clearly you'd started looking at kind of the the cost benefit analysis you were kind of looking at you know what effort am i putting out here what does what need does this actually serve and as each of those things started going down you started saying no let's let's stick with what we have let's let's start focusing on continuing to deepen the offerings right. that people were already serving and i love this idea of this you know facilitator's manual because i think it it's this natural progression that kind of deepens the work that you're doing Correct. in a way that that continues to, to blossom and develop. But I think to me, it does seem simple and natural, but I think it, it's something where a lot of people miss out on these opportunities because they don't see what's right in front of them. And so to me, I think that's a big strength that you have is, is having these opportunities land in front of you, but also having the ability to assess, is this something that I really want to do? And is that, am I really serving a need that I need to be the one to fill? And so I love that. Right. And there's, there's an additional element in this piece and this formula, I guess. And that is, I really trust because all these years, there's so many opportunities that have come before me, fortunately, I really trust that things will just be there when I want it, or things will just show itself randomly. And and I think a good way to relate this to, I know you're both very involved with CAMFT, is that way back when I used to go to these meetings because I loved meeting the people, talking to them, um, being on the board, trying to work together to organize something big or great or wonderful for the community. And I remember so many times where I would hear people coming just to network and they go there. These are therapists who would attend and they would say, I tried going to a meeting or two, but there's no, I am not getting referrals out of this. Yes. And, and so this is a perfect piece of, I, you know, I would imagine there are therapists who attend these meetings just to get referrals versus I actually enjoy being in the company of all those people. I look forward to it. And, oh, guess what? There's this added benefit that there are potential referrals coming through here. But that's not the purpose of going. Yeah. So that's, that's my way of viewing how I approach things is, am I doing something specifically? I mean, outside of advertising, obviously, I'm advertising for specific yeah. client referrals. But outside of that, most of what I do is because I enjoy doing it. And then there's the added benefit of, oh, yeah, people are going to benefit through this or they can know to refer to me for this or I can refer to them. Does that make sense? So that's the, that's, for me, it's that trusting that if I'm doing what I love, what I enjoy, not doing it for a specific reason, but more so because I want to do that. 
And from there grows and comes all these other wonderful connections and opportunities. Well, for the, the sake of arguing. <laughs> yes. Because Kurt likes to argue. It, it does. It. But, love- but it, some people could look at you and say, it's really easy to trust in that when you know, you're walking into the Kardashians' living room when, you know, that everything's going to be there, but you, you've created so much success in so many different areas. You've had so many opportunities that it's really easy when you have so many irons in the fire, like you didn't start there. So, Mm -hmm. you know, for people who this doesn't come so naturally, what, what do you suggest as far as being able to get into that mind space of being able to trust that those opportunities are still there. Are you asking her how to get into the Kardashians living room? Is that what you're asking? Kurt? No, I, that's, that's the <laughs> last living room that I want to be. In. That's hilarious. Again, it comes back to trusting. I can sense. So just to back up back in the day, I remember what I would actually actually love this concept, but then I remember I was getting a little bit tired and drained and because it, it was take up so much of my time. So about 15 years ago, if not longer, I remember therapists would contact me and they would say, Anita, I'd love to take you out to lunch. Anita, I'd love to take you out to lunch. And it's great. But next thing I realized, I was out to lunch five times a week. Yeah. And those lunches take a good two hours. And then I, and then I realized sometimes there were there was breakfast. And then there were all these meetings. Yep. I looked at my schedule and I, I thought, wow, 15 to 20 hours of my week is lunch, breakfast, or networking events. And I thought, this is a little bit crazy. I need to cut down on this. I need to start saying no. I need to start setting boundaries. But most of the time that people would take me out to lunch, what had to do with, Anita, can you give me tips on how to market myself? How do I get clients? And I would love offering this, but what I realized is during that process, it started to take away from what I needed to be doing for myself. And that's, that was part of a, that was a crossroad. Mm-hmm. And within that crossroad, I realized there's a need. What's the need? All these therapists are wanting information on how to run business, how to market, how to get clients. This is when Rachel Tomasian and I um, got together and we started putting on workshops private practice essentials. So we would put on a six-week series of four-hour segments of marketing, uh, branding yourself. It was, it was a whole business because I thought, wait, there's a need. People are taking me out to lunch. But instead, let me get them all together in one room, yeah. give them all the information. That would be, of course, it was like a minor side business, but that wasn't the purpose. The purpose was, how do I reduce the 20 hours a week down to just two or four hours a week and spend once a month with everyone in the room giving all this information. That's, that's yes. kind of how that became this natural progression. And after that, I opened up a, con- a consulting business. So if a therapist wanted to consult with me, they would come with me and I would help them market their business. Now, what is it about, going back to your question, there's, there's an element I notice in some therapists, it, it's the, and I get it, insurance doesn't pay much. It's hard to get your first few clients. Here's, here's what I see that doesn't work. And I know Kurt has spoken about this in the past as well. And that is a lot of therapists have been trained to, or not trained initially, the old school more, go into the field of if, if I'm going to spend $10 for the hour for the room, 
I better have a client for that room. So they wouldn't be renting a block of time monthly because they don't want to waste money if the client money is not coming through. Mm-hmm. So we're not putting out, we're not investing in business. Kurt talks about investing in our business. Mm-hmm. And, and so what I started to see is there was this mentality or mindset of, I'm scared to put out $100 a month unless I have a client, right? It, it was kind of take, which is the same mindset of, I'm only going to go to these networking events if I get referrals, which is the same mindset of, you know, in this field, it's just, Give a little, but I better get back about with something similar. So I, it's that same. I, I don't know what it is exactly. I can't pinpoint it. I'm trying to describe. What you're describing is almost just kind of trying to operate a business out of fear. Yes. Thank you, Kurt. You got it. That's kind of what it is. And when you see that, when you see that there's fear of I'm not going to have enough clients, I'm not going to make it. You know, I, I don't want to spend over 100 or 200 a month or whatever it is. I'm making up a random sum. But when you see that, they're not trusting that they're going to be okay. Yeah. I haven't had that fear, fortunately. And, and I don't think I built my client load because I didn't have that fear. I just had trust. I just, I went along with things. I had trust that if therapy didn't work out, there's some other field I can get into. Yeah, I think that's so important because I feel like when someone operates out of fear or for me, it's kind of that transactional or mercenary kind of, I need to have this pay me back immediately Mm -hmm. effort. You know, I I go to this networking thing, I stand up, I do my spiel. And if I don't get any referrals, then I'm done. That, that, That meeting didn't work for me. Right. And I think... Or I can't pay for an office. And I think about how I, I walked myself into this field. And I feel like there's some similarities here. I, I definitely have had my own fears, Anita. But, but I think that there's that piece of, I didn't want to rent an office space by the hour. I just wanted to have my office so I could start feeling like a therapist and I could start having fun. And I enjoyed furnishing my office. And I enjoyed going to all these meetings and meeting people and, and having coffees. And I did the same thing. I networked with anybody with a pulse. So mm-hmm. that was not good. I burned out on that too. And, and did my own, my <laughs> so own. You, so you know the drill. <laughs> I know the drill. I think I was spending the 15 to 20 hours a week networking. That was just crazy. I mean, I think there's, there's, we, that bore fruit. Both of us have, you know, kind of networked ourselves into a lot of opportunities. Yeah. But I think that that, that shift of, I'm going to do this thing and this is how you do it. And I want to do it in a way that feels good. People can feel that and they start, they interact with you as a human being versus the urgency or this desperation of, I need these referrals. I need this to work out. And I think that's when people come and and feel like I have to check the box to network or I have to check the box to, to get started. And I don't have anything if I don't get anything in return, then I have to immediately abandon it. I think it feels bad and it feels bad for them. It feels bad for the people they're interacting with. And so I think to me, there's that piece of the advice, you know, kind of distilling what you were saying is, is if you decide that you're going to be a private practice clinician, be that and try it out and, and make sure that you've got the, the financial resources set to, to start this thing. and. And, and embody it versus, okay, let me stick my toe in and, okay, let's see if I get anything back and right. those types of things. I mean, I think about my first, very first thing. I think the reason I was able to, you know, 
not be afraid was that I had a salary. I was jumping into private practice while I was still working. And so I said, okay, I'm going to get this full-time office and I'm going to start filling it. And the first month I paid rent because I was able to get clients, you know, because I just was like, oh, I have I've barely any time. Let's, yeah. let's do this thing. But I think there's this other piece. And I think this is part of what Kurt was referring to with the Kardashian living room is that there also is this special sauce. That's just who you are as Anita Avedian. Like, I think there's, there's something that you bring and people were finding that very early. And I think that can feel hard for people that don't necessarily have that confidence or that background with these extra certifications in business. And so how do you recommend folks find their special sauce or the, the thing that's going to help bring them the opportunities that they need in order to, to create the career that's, that's right for them. Because you've got so many pieces and, I, and you know, we're, we're running a little short on time, so we can't go into all the ways sure. that you organize your time and make sure that, that you can get all this stuff, which I would love. Maybe we need to bring you back so we can talk about how you actually make these things, implement but, these but things. But I'll share that. I, you know, thinking out loud is I really believe we have in front of us what we could be using. And I think part of my success has been, I don't turn away. I mean, the app has nothing to do with being a therapist, Yeah. but it was interesting. The book has nothing to do with being a therapist, except for it is therapy material. So it's thinking outside the box. Yes, you're a therapist. Um, in fact, one of my connections I made a long time ago, which is where I started the reality show, was Bad Girls Club. I met her at an Armenian networking event, and she's now an Emmy receiving recipient for the last three years. But she's the one who got me into the reality show world. Mm -hmm. She's a psychologist who doesn't practice therapy. All she does is produces reality shows. Well, guess what? That opportunity happened to be in front of her, and she went with it. There are so many psychologists and therapists who have decided to do something very different with their degree and license and not even practice therapy. So my, my suggestion would be see what you have happening in front of you, even if it's not therapy related, and see if there is a way you can tie that in to what you're doing, right? So if you, yeah. look at my, if you look at what I've been doing, I have several offices with over 30 tenants in there. That's management, office management, tenant yeah. management. That's very different, right? But it's a therapy setting. It's the books. It's the presentations. Some people become a professor and do that on the side. Be open to what's in front of you. You don't have to seek for things too hard. And, and I, think that's, I think that part kind of gets in the way is sometimes, yeah, it's great to have a vision, but don't lose sight of what's coming in front of you on, yeah. the, on your path to the vision you're attempting to get. How do you determine if the the thing the opportunity that's coming in front of you is a, a, an amazing opportunity to to move forward or a distraction? We don't know. You, if to me, it's you look at is this exciting? Is there a possibility here? Great. Let me look into it. And guess what? If in a few months later, and I feel mm, not for me, I leave it. You can't. You know, you don't have to commit to these major things. I mean, book writing, you can stop. right? Speaking, you can decide not for me. I'm not doing this again. So uh, teaching, maybe you're stuck for a semester. I don't know. (laughs) But it's, it's just, it's what's in front of me. Who do I know? What connections do I have? What's, what is, you know, what's something I can do differently now? And if I don't like it, trust my gut, trust my every 
aspect of myself, this is not working for me. As much as I love that, those lunches, networking, this that was taking too much of my time. I had to yeah. restructure how I was approaching things. And I think the piece that that is really important with that is recognizing that it's an experiment. Yes. If there's an opportunity that comes up that seems exciting, that seems like something that you could do well, rather than just go to, well, it's not my therapy practice, or it could be a distraction. It's saying, well, if this is, if there's enough energy behind it, let me experiment. But knowing that you have to then be able to fire, quit, stop, you know, and I think a lot of therapists struggle with that. So I think that's part of the reason sometimes they don't jump in. And so I think that's a really good reminder. You can always walk it back. You can always say, yeah, this didn't work for me. And, and being able to truly experiment and see these opportunities is something that I think a lot of therapists just are afraid of. Yes. <laughs> Our guest today is Anita Vidian. Where can people find more information about you? Great. So if they decide to visit www.avidiancounselingcenter.com or www.angermanagement818.com. So we have both of those websites up. If they'd like to call, it's 818-426-2495. And we'll include links to all of that in our show notes. You can find those on our website, mtsgpodcast.com. And while you're over there, you can look at all of the new stuff that we're putting out about our Therapy Reimagined 2019 conference. It's going to be October 18th and 19th here in the Los Angeles area. And please also join our Facebook group, the Modern Therapist Group, where you can continue on with these conversations. Talk about your inspirations that you're all excited about now that you've heard from Anita. <laughs> until next time, I'm Kurt Woodhelm with Katie Vernoy and Anita Vidian. Thank you for listening to the Modern Therapist Survival Guide. Learn more about who we are and what we do at mtsgpodcast.com. You can also join us on Facebook and Twitter. And please don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss any of our episodes. 